All right, y'all, and as you are seated, um, if you would please grab the Bible that you brought or maybe one of the Bibles that are in the seats by you, you're going to need that this morning as we open up to our passage from 1 John. That's on page 1021 in the Bibles in your seats, or if you're in your own Bible or maybe on a device or something like that, that's going to be in 1 John 1. Keep a thumb maybe there for a few minutes as we get going, and we'll be opening up together in just a second. Let me pray first. Father, we thank you for the privilege of life and of worship and being able to be together. And we pray now that you will please fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would be our guide during this time as we open up your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Man, praise God. My voice has uh, slowly come back and I'm, I'm grateful to be, a, be able to be up here this morning. I was thinking this week about the fact that a lot of people today have different kinds of coaches in their lives. Some of you may have had some sort of a coach with sports, maybe in something like tennis or in golf. You may be aware of the number of coaches that are available to people professionally that can help people give guidance in their business, learning how to grow and, and how to scale, um, gleaning wisdom from experienced leaders. I learned this week that there is a growing number of people that are today offering themselves as spiritual coaches. So Dr. Molly Worthen is a historian. She's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and she writes regularly about American religious culture. And this week, she wrote an essay that was online where she talks about the rise of the industry of spiritual coaching in America. These are entrepreneurs that come from all sorts of different backgrounds that you can hire and, and work with that will give us a sense, if you go to them, of spiritual direction. And for a fee, sometimes it's quite a fee, you can have access to their knowledge and their training and their expertise and their spiritual practices. They claim that they can help people find meaning and purpose. They also happen to claim that those coming to them that are starting their own business or looking to grow their business, they can help these people too. They can help people with their career. Now, it'd be worth asking the question, why are more and more people in America going to coaches like this? Why is that the case? And the author of the essay talks about this, which is the reality. Some of you have heard this before. More and more Americans are identifying ourselves as increasingly spiritual, but not religious. You heard people use those words? Spiritual and not religious, which is really another way of saying as Americans, we're still spiritual. We still have deep longings and deep desires. We are still looking for meaning in life. At the same time, less and less of us are going to the places where people in our culture historically and traditionally have gone to for those things, which is organized religion. Now, Dr. Worthen puts it this way as she's describing this, this dynamic in her essay, which I thought was kind of funny. She says this, quote, she said, we kind of do want the universe to hold our hand. Okay, so we want transcendence. We want comfort. But, quote, without bossing us around too much. So, so we want depth. We want spiritual meaning. We just don't anyone teaching us what we've got to do or, or how we got to live. And think about that for a second. If you and I or anybody else can go to some sort of a spiritual guru, 
and they can give us uh, their insights. And through that, we can get the benefits maybe of religion without having to submit ourselves or to hear, adhere to the teachings of any one particular religion. Why go to religion at all? You know, why go to Christianity at all? A lot of people would ask, Christianity is pretty basic. It's pretty obvious. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, become his disciple, submit your, your life to all of him, connect meaningfully with other disciples, make disciples. You can imagine some people are going, that's it? That's it? Don't you have like some sort of a six-step program? Give me a program. I want something, I mean, don't give me something everybody else has access to. Don't you have something that's more kind of cutting edge, something that's exciting, something that's a little bit more sophisticated. Now, we're starting a new series today in the book of 1 John. Okay, we're going to be walking through 1 John for the next seven weeks through the end of July. And we've started out this morning thinking about this recent phenomenon of spiritual coaches, because what John was wanting to do is to write Christians and help them think very carefully about some religious leaders that were around Christians who were at least, in one sense, selling something that wasn't all that different. Okay, they, these were teachers that were going beyond in their teachings what Christians had been told and come to know about Jesus. And what John wants to do is he wants to protect them and with the most stark words. He wants to shield them from this. What am I talking about? Follow me for just a second here as we think about this context. When we're reading John, who was, as we know in the fourth gospel, we believe the beloved disciple, he had been with Jesus. He had spent time with him, followed him. John's writing these churches. They're in Asia Minor. He's most likely writing from Ephesus or modern-day Turkey. He knew at the time when he's doing this that there was this movement growing and taking off around the periphery of Christian community that was starting to gain momentum. And what was the movement? Some of you have studied this book know the answer to that. The movement was what we could call Gnosticism. Now, bear with me for a second. Like some of the spiritual coaches that this essay was talking about, there were people at that time in the church that were claiming to offer something new and something unique. They claimed that they had a special kind of knowledge that God had given them directly and personally. Now, you should know, that word Gnosticism is coming from the Greek word for, uh, the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And even though obviously people back then did not have followings on social media, okay, they didn't have Facebook accounts, Instagram accounts, TikTok. What they were doing was they were using their wisdom and these claims to become their own influencers, okay, influencers of their own time. In fact, at one point, this movement gets so big that these Christians that were following them started to separate themselves from the other Christians around them. So again, here's this group of people. They had originally been in the church. There are these others around them saying, hey, you wanna be, on some, you wanna be in on something that's exciting? Something that's invigorating? Come, follow us. Listen to what we, we have to tell you. Now, let me just make one more introductory comment about this movement because we, we've really gotta be able to get our minds around uh, the Gnosticism and what was going on at this time, if we're going to appreciate what John's emphasizing in this letter. And this is going to take me just a few more seconds. At its core, Gnosticism was a worldview or a set of beliefs that was different from Christianity in a lot of ways. One of the most key ways 
that was that it had no connection to historical facts about Jesus. Had no connection to history. It was mainly philosophical. It was speculative. It was kind of intellectual guesswork. And of, of all the different streams of Gnosticism that were out there, there were two kind of key values that they had, the Gnostics. Okay, one of them was that they valued, obviously, knowledge. They valued the mind. And number two, this is also really important to know what they believed and what they were teaching. They believed matter was evil. And they believed that because they believed that the world had come from an evil power. It's not just that they saw the world was fallen. They actually believed that that matter itself was something that was bad. And because of that, what it did is it, it led them and, and the Christians that they were influencing to be tempted to, to start to reject one of the most key things that they had been told about Jesus was what we call today the incarnation. But the fact that Jesus had become flesh. And that makes sense if you think about it, isn't it? If you believe that matter is bad, the idea of a holy, omnipotent, sovereign God uniting himself with a body, that just doesn't make sense. They rejected it. And we could talk a lot more about Gnosticism. We're not going to do that this morning. Um, I want to encourage you, go on Google, go on Wikipedia. You can read all about it. What we need to know for the sake of this time and the rest of our time in this series is that it was obvious to John there was a group of people around these Christians that he was writing to that were confusing them about what was true. Okay, and, and not only were they becoming, they were coming to believe things that were unchristian, they were now, as a result of that, coming to live in ways that were unchristian. And so here's what we're going to do specifically today. Okay, what we're going to try to do is we're going to open up to this first passage, these first several verses in John, and we're going to see all the ways that John is trying to cut through the different confusion that Christians were having about Jesus. Okay, especially in these first opening verses, John seems to be saying this. Look, with all the different things that y'all have been hearing about Jesus, maybe the different ways that you've been confused, there are two things that you can be confident about when it comes to him. One, when it comes to Jesus, you can know that you know the truth. You can know that you know the truth. When it comes to Christianity, he was saying, this is not hypothesizing. This is not guesswork. We know these things are true. Not educated guesses. And then second, because you can be confident you know the truth, you can be confident you know how to live. And that sounds abstract, but follow me here. When we know how to live, or I'm sorry, when we know what's true, what that does for us is that gives us a huge amount of clarity in life about what life should actually look like and how we should live in response to it. Think about this. We face all kinds of challenges every day in knowing how to go about life. And what, what Jesus does for us, we're going to see from John, is that when we have confidence in Jesus, we now have a certainty that we, we may not know the answers to all the questions. And the Bible doesn't give us the answer to every question. But what it does do is give us at least a grid to start to process these questions through. And that is a great great help to us. We're going to think more about what that looks like in just a couple of minutes. So that's where we're going now. We're going to be thinking about the, the confidence of having truth, as John shows us, and the confidence, then knowing how to live. Let's start then with this confidence about the truth. Again, one thing that John shows us, as abstract as this sounds in this passage is, because of the eyewitness accounts about Jesus, 
that people had spent time with him. They had seen him. Christians can claim what they understand why they believe what is true. Again, it's we're not just guessing or, or grasping things out of thin air. Remember, that's what the Gnostics were doing. They, they were philosophizing. They were, um, uh, they, they were teaching ideas that were not grounded in reality. They didn't have any facts. The opposite is the case with Christianity. So that's what makes Christianity one of the most um, compelling and, and powerful worldviews compared to every other belief system is the fact that this is something that is grounded in history it's rooted in historical events that are either true or untrue, and they're open to investigation. Some of y'all that are on Netflix, you might know there's a lot of, document, a lot of documentaries right now on Netflix about cults, if you've seen some of these. And when you read these, we often read about some group of people or some individual that is under the influence of a self-appointed sort of leader. And what does the leader normally say to people? Look, I've got some sort of special knowledge or some sort of special insight into life. And if you want that knowledge, what you got to do is you've got to come and you've got to go through me. That's what cult leaders do. And one of the reasons that this is so challenging is if you look at some of the, the teachings of the most successful cult leaders, their teaching is so philosophical and so abstract and so vague it's almost impossible to disprove the things that they teach, which is why so many people get caught up in it. That's not, y'all, what Christianity is like. Okay, Christianity is totally different because one, you don't have to have access to a special leader in order to investigate it. In other words, there's accessibility. And the things that we read about, as we just said, are things that we can study and we can find out whether or not they're true. And if they're not true, it all falls apart. So accessibility and transparency. And so with all that said, now let's, let's open this passage. Again, we're on uh, page number 1021. As we look at this, John's seeking to persuade us about the trustworthiness is what leads to all this testimonial language that we're gonna read about with these first couple verses. I wanna read just for a second, one through two. Again, in our church, we use the ESV Follow along with me just for just a second. He says this, talking about Jesus, obviously. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. So again, remember, this is somebody that was with Jesus himself. And, and then again, look at all that sort of testimonial language here, starting out at verse one, all the emphasis, Jesus says, this is somebody, y'all, we heard. Like I heard him say my voice. He had a voice. We saw him. We saw him do miracles. We, we saw him crucified. He, we saw his resurrected body. Okay, he fed breakfast to us in John 21. We touched him. John chapter 20, remember them hanging out with Thomas and, and him inviting Thomas to touch his hands, okay, to touch the sides of his body. These weren't people that had any doubt in their minds about whether or not Jesus really lived. And this is why when you keep reading, John continues to harp in on this language of testimony. Look at that word testify in verse two, starting with the life was made manifest. The life was made manifest and we have seen it 
and testify to it. So y'all, we, we testify these things are really true. Or remember those words from our reading from John's gospel in, in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. He says, y'all, the purpose of me writing these things that I've been reading about, all the eyewitness accounts that you've been learning about, my purpose in doing that was so that, these, so that you all might believe and that by believing, you might have eternal life. These, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. We can trust the gospels. I mean, we've talked about this before. We talked about it on Easter. There are so many great resources for helping us think about this. If you haven't read it, just another example. Someone was asking me about some resources recently. Um, there's, a, there's a more dense book that's by a professor named Richard Baucom out of the University of Cambridge. He has a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses that gives us these reminders why it's the, the gospel accounts that we have in the other writings of the New Testament are so trustworthy as to this, this Jesus of Nazareth being a man who really lived and who really died. Also keep in mind, when we see what John's doing here, talking about the credibility of this person of Jesus, no, he's pushing back on two more of the common criticisms that people hear about Jesus. Okay, one of them, and we did, we did talk about this recently, I think it was a number of weeks ago. One is the claim that some people make that Jesus maybe didn't exist at all. That he was like some sort of a mythical figure, like the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot, that, that he, he didn't really exist. Now, the problem with that is you can't look at these eyewitness accounts and come to that conclusion. You can't read ancient history and come to that conclusion. Almost every Ancient historian agrees that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, did live 2,000 years ago. He was executed under Roman occupation, and he had a following that exploded. The only debate is really whether or not Jesus really was who he claimed to be. So it pushes back against that, that he wasn't real. It also puts back, pushes back against some of the claims that the Gnostics had was that he wasn't actually human. Remember, they thought matters evil, Physical things are evil. And because of that, they rejected the idea of what we call the incarnation, that Jesus became a human being. But look at what John's saying. He says, y'all, it's not just that Jesus looked human. He was human. We were with him. We, we saw him. We heard him. We touched him. He was as human as any of us. So as John's starting out here, look at the way that he's been beginning for us Christians. Remember, you can know what's true. You know what we've told you is true because... There's evidence for it. It's not a secret. This is not something that we're trying to keep under wraps or building an industry, okay? In fact, we've been going around trying to tell everybody we know about Jesus. A lot of guys that I'm friends with, they've gone to their deaths doing this. And that, that's maybe helpful, that idea of, of the credibility and, and the confidence that that gives us just Maybe just to pause for a second and remember this, and, and, and this applies for anyone, whether or not you're a Christian, I mean, I don't, I don't know who's visiting with us this morning or, or those of you who are watching online, but this is something that we all have to think about. When it comes to whatever we believe about the world and about reality, we have to ask ourselves, do we have reasons to believe what we believe? Are those beliefs grounded in something outside of ourselves grounded in some sort of facts? Or are the reasons that I believe what I believe maybe because it feels good or because it's convenient or it, it just seems to, to resonate with me? It, it, 
it seems to be um, what leads to even a, a more flourishing society. Even then you have to step back and go, well, who, who gets to define what a flourishing society is? How do we know these things? We've got to remember feelings are good. They point to our longings for the truth. And at the same time, feelings don't prove things are true. There's got to be something outside of ourselves that does. And in the case of Christianity, John says, you can have confidence that these things are credible because this Jesus is one who really lived, really claimed to be the son of God. Y'all, you can know these things. Don't be distracted by these other voices. That's the first thing that John talks about is giving us confidence that we can know these things are true. And now second, and building on that first one, because we can have confidence that we can believe these things, we can have confidence in knowing how to live. We can know how to live. And again, I know that sounds abstract, but think about this, is not knowing how to live and how to go about everyday life, especially in the world that we live in now, one of the most overwhelming experiences that we have on a regular basis. We get out of bed every morning and we've got a thousand things that we got to answer. One is just like, how am I going to spend my time today? You know, or, or what about, I've got a particular relationship in my life right now that's really sensitive. Uh, it requires being addressed and handled with care. What am I going to do with this? We got those sort of questions. We've obviously got the, the more concrete questions that are in a very different category, which is just okay, in a time and in a culture where so people are arguing about so many different things today, how do I know what to believe? And not only, not only how do I know what to believe, but if I have a family, like what do I tell my kids when they ask me about this stuff when they get home from school? What do I tell my grandkids? So we've got all sorts of, of hard challenging questions with everyday life about knowing how to go about it. And, and, and we've even got much more broad and, and general ones, like the ones that keep us up at night when we're in bed, like, is there a purpose to my life? You know, am, am I living that out? Am I missing something? And what John's gonna show us as we continue is that as Christians, when we come to these questions, we don't have to approach them empty-handed. So where's that coming from? If you have your Bible, we're gonna get back into that now. We're gonna answer this going back to the passage. Notice as we start to get to verse three, the reason that John gives us that he and others have been proclaiming Jesus to them. Pick it on verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we could ask the passage, John, why is it that you're going about telling people, proclaiming Jesus? Two explanations. First one's from the first half of three. So that you two may have fellowship with us. To go back to what I said earlier, again, John knew that were, there were some Christians that under the influence of these teachers were starting to separate themselves from Christian community, from believers. And what he's trying to say here is by, by reminding of you of what you know to be true about Jesus, y'all, stick with us. Stay with us. You have community with us. You have fellowship with us. That's why we're telling you these things. That's the first explanation. But then notice the second one builds on it, continuing in verse three. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So, y'all, we want you to be a part of our community because, y'all, we are in community with the living God. He, he is everything to us. We, we, and he, then he specifically mentions God the Father, God the Son on Trinity Sunday. Great, remember, we know the Holy Spirit. You get to chapter two, and he's gonna to start to talk in John, 1 John, about the Holy Spirit. So you put those explanations together, and it's very clear as to why John's stressing these things. Y'all, we are telling you these things that you can know about Jesus so that you can know Jesus is real. And by knowing he's real, you can be connected to us. You can be connected to God. You can make him the center of your life. That's why we're telling you these things. If Jesus wasn't real, he seems to say, why do you want to be connected to a group of people that have staked their lives on him? Why, why would you even want to be connected to community that is in communion with him if he's just a myth. He's not a myth, he's saying. And because of that, you can be with us. Come gather around us, gather around God together. Now, if you're still with me, and I hope you are, here's now how this is connected to this question about how we know how to live, both the bigger questions and the smaller questions. Said just a couple minutes ago, we all faced what feels like a thousand questions every day about how to go about life. And here's how John seems to be connecting this to those questions. When we're persuaded that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, the son of God sent by the father as a human being, and by believing in him, we're connected now again, not just to other Christians, but we have communion with the father and the son and the Holy Spirit what we get in that moment is a huge amount of clarity about knowing how to go about to answer some of these questions. And again, it's not to say that we now know the answer to every question that someone could pose a Christian in life, but we at least have a starting point. Because the starting point, as simple as it sounds, is Jesus. That's the starting point with all the questions. So what's my life about? It's about Jesus. It's about knowing him. It's about serving him. It's about becoming his disciple, making disciples, partnering with other disciples. Other questions. How should I focus my time? A question some younger people particularly wrestle with is, should I get married? If I do get married, who should I get married to? What kind of person? What should I do for a career? Where should I live? How should I think about my retirement? and maybe the last season of my life? How do, how do we answer these things? Well, again, if we have this as a starting point, there's some clarity to those questions, okay? As, as simple as it sounds, whatever allows me to prioritize these things about Jesus. Again, knowing him, serving him, because he was the son of God that John says really lived. If he didn't really live, y'all, our answers to those questions should have nothing to do with the person Jesus Christ. That makes no sense if he was just a myth. If he really was who he claimed to be, the son of God dying for our sins, inviting us to put our faith in him and to stake all of our lives around him, it makes sense to take him into account with every one of those questions. In fact, we have to do that. Confidence in Jesus gives us confidence to answer the bigger questions. It gives us confidence to answer the smaller or, or what I mean by that is in some ways seemingly more practical or concrete questions. Again, I want to go back to what I was saying earlier. Think about all the questions that you hear as, as you watch the news or stand around the water cooler at work. 
people talking about going on in America right now, conversations related to all kinds of things like sanctity of life, gender, sexuality, race. I mean, you turn on the news, you're gonna hear a thousand different opinions on every one of those subjects and like a million more every night. How do we even know how to answer these? It's, again, it's not that Christianity, Jesus or the Bible gives us magical answers to every one of those. For some of those, it gives us very immediate and pretty clear answers. But again, at least it gives us a starting point. One of those ones being the fact that if we take Jesus Christ seriously, we have to take the things that he took seriously. And that includes, for example, the scriptures. You look at what Jesus has to say about the scriptures and especially the Old Testament, when you look at the Gospels, it's very clear how he felt about them. And he, didn't, he said, I didn't come to just get rid of all these. I came to fulfill them. And one of the amazing things about that is that, that doesn't just give us something that's like a magic eight ball that we just pose a question and we shake and ask what it says. But what it does do is it gives us a robust resource that we can turn to. It gives us a deep well that when we have these hard questions, we can go to that and we can draw from it and it never runs dry. It, it, it is also miraculously consistent in the way that it talks about a number of things. And I wanna talk just for a second about why this matters so much, having that available to us. Think about this for a second. I wanna go back to the spiritual coaches from the beginning. Okay, when you think about these coaches and, and the need that people are feeling to go to people like this and to ask for their wisdom and their insights in life and their guidance, it's, it's not enough just to have nice ideas from people about what the meaning of my life is and what the purpose of my life is or, or how my business can scale. That's not enough for us as human beings. We, get, we have, again, all sorts of different things, a, a thousand different questions and areas a day where we need some sort of guidance. We need some sort of practical and authoritative insight into know how to respond to these things how to know what is really good and what is really evil. What is right? What's wrong? What's true? What's not true? What's beautiful? What's not beautiful? Think about it. If, if we as human beings don't have answers to those questions, it is impossible to take a position on any of the things I mentioned earlier or honestly, anything else. We have to know answers to those questions. And the great part is when we have the scriptures, we have what we all need, which is a resource that is outside of ourselves that we can go to and that can guide us as to knowing how to even begin to think about these things because God has told us how we can begin to think about these things. And just one more example with that. I mean, some of you are wondering, is this, just, is this getting philosophical? You hear someone talk about, why well, believe in human rights. Okay, great. Why? And that's not to say we don't believe in human rights, but if what makes humans so special that we should have rights, why not say we believe in animal rights? Okay, there, there's gotta be a reason that we believe the different things that we believe. We can't just say because it, it feels good or it's, it's self-evident. Is it self-evident? There's a lot of people that historically have not believed in human rights at all. They've had no sense of equality, no sense of rights. As human beings, I mean, I should say as Christians, there's a lot that we can look at in the scriptures that talks about that, being made in the image of God, by virtue of being made in his image, being ascribed uh, value and worth. But we, we've got to have something, again, outside of ourselves to appeal to. 
Now, let me just say it one more time, and I never said it before. This doesn't mean that, that we are going to know exactly what the Christian response is to any possible thing that anybody could ask about. What it does do, though, is because we know what is true and who is true, it gives us that starting point that we've been talking about. Jesus Christ, that in verse 2, John says, is the one that they have seen, testified to, and proclaimed. That's the starting point. The gospel is the starting point. And you know what the best part about it is? It's not a secret. It's not a secret. You don't have to fork over a consult fee for anyone to learn about it. It is not a secret. It is free for anyone at once. So in closing, y'all, let's just be honest. We, we live in a crazy time. Does anyone else feel like it's crazy out there? It's, it's overwhelming. It's, it's polarizing. It's confusing. We struggle to know who to trust, what to believe, how to live. John shows us, y'all, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can have confidence about all these things because Jesus really did live. He really did die for our sins. He really was raised from the dead and he really rules and reigns as I stand here and as you sit in your seats. And in the weeks to come, we're gonna see more in 1 John that right belief and right living doesn't have to be a mystery to us because we've been given everything that we need to know. We hope you'll join us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.